You told an interesting story. You said that this January action that you did, and you blockaded the uh, UN um, mission, and it was just you standing there, you guys, and how many were you? Well, there were 11 of us arrested right. finally. But and you, you were holding a banner. Stop U.S.-Saudi war crimes in Yemen. There was a, a mission employee. You said something to him while he was trying to get out for his lunch. In uh, the end of December and early January, was we, we fasted for a week. And then many of us went on to Washington, D.C. and fasted there for another week. And I was a little testy. I had not eaten any solid food for a week. <laughs> and I'm standing there with a banner, and somebody's trying to push from behind me, a State Department employee, saying, you're making me late for my lunch. <laughs> And that didn't... It was a blockade. That didn't exactly tug at my heartstrings. Well yeah, I, I just, like, I, I, I should have been more sympathetic. <laughs> and I apologize. I Cops were, we were outnumbered easily four to one. They were all lined up and they're getting their handcuffs ready and everything. And I said, look, what, you're not going to be too late for your lunch. And I said, but there are millions of people who miss their lunch today and they miss breakfast and mix think about them. The blockade that we did that we have to answer in criminal court tomorrow is I'm kind of embarrassed almost in the in in the smallness of it. <laughs> 15 years old. Hussein Mohammed Hassan Al-Hajri, 15 years old. Those are some of the names of dozens of Yemen children killed by a bomb produced by Lockheed Martin and dropped on their school bus by a Saudi military plane. We'll be talking with two people who have been protesting those state-sanctioned killings. Welcome to Bar Crow Radio number 32. I'm Rebecca McCain, and my podcast partner, Alan Winson, and I believe that the best conversations happen at your neighborhood bar. For this show, we are at our favorite Upper West Side watering hole. One of our favorite. I should say. Yeah, we've Upper got, we've got quite, we've, we're gathering quite a few we're, of them. Yes, we're gathering all these favorites. Gabriella's Tequila Bar on West 94th Street in Columbus. Gabriella has great food, great margaritas, and their own signature tequila. It's a neighborhood bar where young people on dates feel as comfortable as families with small children. And if you like BCR Podcasts, please let us know by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. And go on, send us an email, all right? at barcrawlradio at gmail.com. We want to thank Nat and Liz, Gabriella's owner, for clearing a corner of their attractive bar for a conversation with two people who have dedicated their lives to making our world a saner and more humane place. Kathy Kelly lists her occupation as peace activist. She travels to those troubled spots in our world that most sensible people would avoid. Afghanistan, Gaza, Nicaragua, Bosnia, Jordan, Haiti... She has been to Iraq more than 20 times to protest U.S.-U.N. sanctions on that country and was there early on during the U.S.-Iraq war. Miss Kelly has been arrested dozens of times here and abroad protesting U.S. military stances. In 1988, she trespassed onto a nuclear missile site in Missouri and served nine months in a Kentucky maximum security prison for that action. She's been in federal prisons three other times since then. Kathy Kelly is a founding member of Voices in the Wilderness and the author of Other Lands Have Dreams, Letters from Pekin Prison, published in 2005. Miss Kelly has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize three times, and we are honored to have her with us on Bar Crawl Radio. And we also have with us Brian Terrell. He writes for the National Catholic Reporter, 
and is a leader of many peace activist groups, including Voices for Creative Nonviolence and Witness Against Torture. Uh, the latter group held a week-long action in Washington, D.C., protesting an American prison in Guantanamo, Cuba, which Barpro Radio has reported on. See uh, episode number 29. It's a five-part series. We're very proud of it. Brian has traveled in Afghanistan many times, told me about the harshness of life in Kabul. Recently, he walked 100 miles in Georgia in support of several activists who had trespassed on the Kings Bay Naval Station in Georgia and who are now facing serious federal charges. We hope to speak with two of those defendants, Carmen Trotta and Martha Hennessy, in an upcoming Barcrow Radio program. Brian told me before the recording that he had been in prison many times due to his protest and easily has learned more about the human condition in lockup than all of his college years. And we want to welcome both Brian and Kathy to Bar Crawl Radio. Yes, welcome. We want to welcome Kathy and Brian uh, for being here on Bar Crawl Radio. And I want to, first thing we do is say cheers. We all have our drinks, except Becky who's not feeling so good. There we go. And, and thank you for the work that you're doing. And we're going to talk about that work. Okay, got back there we go. We're going to talk about that work uh, for the next uh, few minutes. We are really curious about your early life inspirations. Um, Brian, you run a, a farm in um, Malloy, Iowa with your wife, Betsy. Okay, well, very, very briefly, um, I was born in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and uh, my father was in the, the military, and he had been since uh, the beginning of World War II. He was in World War II, he fought in Korea, and... Uh, so you have a real military background. Then, uh, yeah, my parents lived on, uh, my first home was Fort Riley, Kansas. Wow. And then uh, moved to my mother's home. My, my father left the Army and was a helicopter pilot, test pilot for a company, and he was in the very beginning of helicopter, use of helicopter aviation in the military. When I was six years old, he died in an accident. He was a test pilot. Um, he made it through the Korean War? Yes. Because helicopters were big in the Korean War. Yes, yes. And he was, you know, he, he, he took the skills that he, that he had learned there, and then in the civilian sector in the United States, he, he was uh, a test pilot. And, and he crashed? Yes. Okay. And, How old uh, were you when that wow. happened? I was six, six. years old. And, um, do you remember him? I do very, very well, and very, very fondly, especially because my, my next years were quite chaotic. And um, uh, so I, I do remember having a loving home in those those first years. And do, you, I, do, do you feel any um, any pull one way or the other? Because I mean, he was part of the war machine, and you you are dedicated your life as opposed to the war machine. Um, does that create some dissension within you, or no, no? And I, I wish I could talk to my dad about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But. Uh, no, I think you know many of the people that most of our comrades. I, I I very often find myself in groups of people of whom, where I am the only male who's not a veteran. Yeah. Right. So I, I don't I don't see. I, I think the people who who have had, had the experience of war very very often, uh, you know, former soldiers are very often, uh, and even soldiers who are in the military now. I think that something that that gets gets lost is that in the Vietnam era, and I was just a child then, but uh, that the, the, you know, the back, very backbone of the anti-war movement was the GI movement. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's the, it, it, you know, it's just very wrong to make a, um, 
assumption that because somebody, especially a working class person, uh, especially today where there's so few opportunities and so few ways that someone, a young person in this country can see t toward getting not only you know, big time success, but just living. And uh, Kathy can talk more about uh, about our friends in Afghanistan and, and the, 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 you know, the tensions there that, that, that for young people in Afghanistan, uh, they have the very few um, opportunities. Yeah. And the opportunities so, they have are, are very often to either go into the Afghan military or going into um, uh, joining rebel groups. And yeah. So you, you are really a veteran of a different kind of part of the, you're in the Peace Corps, you're in the, not in the Peace Corps literally, but the peace, uh, you know, you're working for something else. But what inspired you when you were young? Well, I think as I said, my life was very chaotic when I was, when I was young. And I think uh, my brothers and I are all doing very different things, but we're not, none of us have pursued the American dream. And our mother, God bless her, uh, lived a very sad life because she never, she did not um, abandon that dream. Oh. And I think we saw that this, this is not going to work, and this is not what we want to put our life into. This is into. the dream of owning a house and having money and having things. And right, right. And getting a professional yeah. career um, or whatever. Her son being a doctor. And right. So, <laughs> um, but I, I went to college for one year and dropped out in uh, 1975. I was 19 years old, and I came here to New York and was at the Catholic Worker. And we're going to talk about the Catholic work. And I, the Lower East Side. And, and, yeah. and I got to know very quickly um, uh, Dorothy Day, a huge influence on my life. And um, You knew her personally? Yes, and uh, Daniel Berrigan. And then um, I would be often be visiting uh, Baltimore and Washington, D.C. With, with, with Philip Berrigan and Elizabeth McAllister. Daniel and Berrigan's I brother. I was very... Um, I, yeah, I, I just feel very, very blessed to have had those those influences and not just those um, people whose names I've, I've mentioned but, but many more people whose names right. we don't know and, you were and also the, the homeless people who, who I met, on, met in our houses were, were very uh, much a part of the education that I got this is the, the houses of the Catholic worker the houses uh, of hospitality uh, yeah. Kathy why, why don't we talk, talk with you welcome to Barclay Radio. Uh, you're, you're kind of a superstar in the peace activist movement. You were born in Chicago, uh, and I just wanted to get kind of an idea of your early life and work towards what got you activated in this life that you're in right now. So uh, you grew up in Garfield Ridge. Which was one of the most segregated neighborhoods in the country. Wow. Um, and we had enormously secure lives I don't know, we might, we might have been upper lower class or lower middle class, I'm not sure. But Dad was a teacher, so I was pretty sure that that gave teach? me a couple notches above others. My dad taught math and mechanical drawing and whatever else he was asked to teach at a Catholic high school. A couple of notches in terms of your comfort. Well, no, 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 not comfort. Dad always had holes in his shoes and holes in the bottom of his cars and whatnot. But, but I just thought, well, well, we must be important because our dad is a teacher and uh -huh. there weren't too many other... I suppose professionals, except the nuns. And actually the nuns probably had one of the strongest influences in my life. I'm grateful to family life, but you know, the nuns always shared things in common. They 
You know, nuns get a bad uh, rap no, in I media. No, I want to give them a good rap. Give them a good rap. Give, yeah. a, give us a story about uh, something that happened in a relation with, with uh, one of these women that... That, that influenced that you. That influenced you. Uh-huh. Well, I suppose um, I wanted to please the nuns, and I wanted to be um, a good child. And As sister, we all did when we were children. Yes, and yeah. Sister Rosalio uh, was uh, the, the voice teacher and the principal, and I could break windows with my voice. I was just terrible. She had to ask me to lip-sing the Gregorian chant, which is not terribly interesting because it's like one syllable. (laughs) But it was the kindness, you know, no matter how many times I threw off that choir, no matter how many times, you know, they were cringing at the stuff, there was a certain kindness. And they... But I think, you know, I've, I've been a Vortex refuser since 1980. And that's meant, okay, you don't own anything, because if you do, the IRS could very likely I take read that. it. You, and in fact, took a job once, at, at, and you asked your employer to pay you less. Yeah, down to th- underneath $3,000 at a Jesuit college prep school. So you didn't have to pay taxes right, right, yeah. and support any militarism yeah, that yeah. the U.S. But what I want to say is that what prepped me, I think, for going to prison and for living underneath the taxable income and sort of presuming that you don't go running around into first-hand stores and that you you know, try to roll up your sleeves and be of some service, were these young, very beautiful nuns who taught me in elementary and high school, and I thought, oh, I just want to be one of them. And then I have to confess, when the habits were put in the trunk and they wore plain clothes and they drove cars and they lived in apartments, the allure wasn't quite there. I thought, well, I can do what they did and stay in my own apartment and so but I'm very very grateful for and um, deeply moved by the lives of service of the women who now are part of a kind of um, ending history there aren't very many new vocations yeah Yeah. I think if you go to other countries you will find people joining up in in the United States it seems a bit unlikely so I think of all of the places they built institutions that did a lot of good service work and they worked hard and so I wonder, well, how do we keep it going? And I think now, I've heard Brian say so many times, there can be no rational discussion about solving the problems we face without dismantling the military. So I see that as a vocation, right. to dismantle the United States military, to do whatever actions I can nonviolently take to stand up to resist and challenge the U.S. military. Was there a pivotal moment, though, in your youth that you decided to go in that direction? Um, you know, I was a very late bloomer. I think I, I, I should confess in a sense that I didn't get very many ideas in my head about me actually taking an action. I, I could cry over the paper. I could hold my own in a discussion. But for me to act seemed sort of off the scale or the charts. And then I married into the peace movement. I married Carl Meyer. And Carl Meyer, um, in our neighborhood, I lived in at the time in the poorest neighborhood on the north side, we were just uh, in awe of his experience. He'd been to war zones, he'd been to prison, he hadn't paid his federal income taxes, he lived very simply, he watched birds every Saturday morning. And so Is he, he still with us? Uh, yes, he is. And Carl, Carl and I are no longer married, but we're very, very close. And um, I must say that uh, his, his tutelage, in a sense, was extremely important. And that led me to meet Brian when Brian was just, I don't know, 20 or something. How did you meet? There was a Catholic worker gathering, and Brian and Betsy were there, and I remember thinking, oh, wow, you know, I'm meeting Brian Terrell. So I came into things a little bit late. Um, So he he already had a name for himself. Brian did, yes, yes. (laughs) 
Um, let's talk about the Catholic Worker, because I don't think a lot of our listeners know what it is. Catholic I don't Worker know what it and, is. and Dorothy Day. Um, what, what, what should we know about the Catholic Worker? In, you know, five easy lessons. <laughs> <laughs> Brian. Oh, well, I'll say it's a... Um, Peter Morin, who founded the Catholic Worker Dorothy Day, said it's an organism and not an organization. So as such, it's difficult to define, just as difficult to define any of us personally. Uh, and it's, um, I told a friend of mine once who worked for the Diocese of Des Moines that I'm very comfortable with explaining how the Catholic worker is Catholic. And I'm glad I don't have your job because if somebody asked me how the Diocese of Des Moines was Catholic, I would have, wow. have no clue. Right. So I really believe the Catholic worker is embodies the really you know the essence of 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 Catholic teaching more than know, the actual Catholic structure, which the structure of has the often very very often been uh, contrary to and been, been been a drag on you know the, the the real Catholic teaching has never been embodied in the in the popes and cardinals. Um, because uh, Dorothy Day once said, I, I do not put any confidence in the popes and uh, father abbots and bishops. But it's in the, uh, uh, well, it, it, you know, it's, it's I, I think the idea, the essence of it is that we're not, the Catholic Worker is not a missionary organization in terms of we're not trying to bring Christ to other people and right. to convert them. But we're trying to convert ourselves and yeah. convert this messed up society that we live in and are very much a part of. We are not pure or separate from it. But that we we do not go to the people who are in prison or the people who are homeless with, with, with the conceit that we can bring Christ to them. Okay. But we go because we, we can encounter Christ by going to prison, by serving on a soup line, by opening our homes to the refugee, that this is where, where we, we have a, a really deep contemplative connection to to God or to the the, the idea of, the, 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 of 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 if you don't want to be theological about it about just like the the the, the, the humanity whole thing about the of humanity and the universe is that is that we we just have a much clearer. Our experience of being with people in prison and in war zones and the homeless in our country, that it gives us a much purer and much clearer picture of what's going on in the world. We understand through, not, not, we understand through them. So let me just see if I understand this. Your service that you do for these other people brings you closer to your idea of God. Well, another another way to put it would be where you stand determines what you see. And if, if you're standing inside a federal prison, you're going to get a much better idea of what the collateral consequences are of mass incarceration. And when you stay in touch with people you've been imprisoned with, it's easier to understand what it's like for people to experience disenfranchisement and unemployment and stigma and family breakup. And so, uh, I, I, Brian, I know you didn't mean to say we're more pure no, than I said someone we're not. else. No, we're not. I meant we're to not say we're not. Pure, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So, but I think that there's a postcard that I love to 
have my hands on and kind of keep as a, a memento to myself. And it's just simply contra juxtaposes the works of war with the works of mercy. The works of mercy, you feed the hungry, you clothe the naked, you um, visit those who are in prison, you heal the sick. The works of war, you burn the crops, you bury kill the, the dead, people. you kill the people. So, you know, I think that do we have to choose sides? The truth is, yes. Uh, and then I like this line from Joan of Arc that Mark Twain says, she said, I don't know, I wouldn't bet the farm on it, but that she said, when we go before the great God and we are asked, where are the others? What shall we say? So when Brian and I have gone um, separately most recently, because it's not safe to go even with two, over to Kabul, Afghanistan, now the least safe city in the whole country. Um, in the world. In the world, yeah. Wow. You know, people are considered the other, but we meet some of the most idealistic, attractive, sturdy, steady, young teenagers you could ever encounter. I mean, any family in the United States would say, oh my word, yes, you know, move this child in with us. And um, I've been in, in Iraq with mothers and children undergoing the most painful, horrid bombardment, you know, gut-wrenching explosions and ear-splitting blasts. And they'll say things to me like, please, when you go back to your country, tell the mothers in your country that we pray this will never happen to them and their children. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a spontaneous response. So that's, that's what's shaping informative, I think, that, you know, where, where we stand does kind of determine what we you know, see. You know, Kathy and Brian, what you're talking about may, may seem, I think, to most of us, I'm putting quotes around it, normal people, because I don't see you two as normal, uh, as being like, it's like, uh, it's so big, it's so enormous, it's so heady, it's so full of feeling, I can't go there. And I just wonder, is there a way that we can communicate this idea of the Catholic worker? I mean, I'm Jewish. I, I, I was at the prayer talks at the, at the Witness Against Torture in January when we were in Washington, D.C. And it's like, I, I felt it, you know, I'm not Christian, but I, I, I felt what you were talking about. But how do you get it across to other people? For instance, what I wanted to hear is, your farm, Brian, is based on Catholic worker, uh, principles, is it not? Yes, and it's... Um, so maybe we can enter it that way. Well, one a friend of ours at a Catholic worker farm in South Dakota put it that what we're doing is practicing for when peace breaks out. <laughs> <laughs> because it is... The way that we live is, is only supportable by war. Hmm. And... We can we can be very um, optimistic and 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 think you know we talk about what it would be like if we if peace ever happens. But the fact is that the people in China will have better things to do than make our shoes mm. if they have choices. The people of Honduras will not be just growing sugar for us if they could use their land and their labor for what they want to do. And it, and it probably is not growing sugar. Um, and so when we're not at war anymore, when there is justice, is we're going to have to feed ourselves. We're going to have to make our clothes. 
uh, we're going to have to. So, so what we're doing is, as as Kathy said, we're not we're not pure. It's not working at our, our personal purity, but we're trying to rebuild the skills. You know, uh, my wife Betsy and I raise dairy goats, and we we make cheese and yogurt, and we have chickens, and and we we grow Kathy, most have you been of on our, this farm. Oh, a ring of the cheese that Betsy and Brian make is... Is it good? Oh, my God. You can't get better. Uh, no, it is... No, it, it's it, you know, it's a very good life, and it's in, and in many ways it is compromised as anybody else's. It's, you know, because we're not going to do this individually. We are not... The idea is that Betsy and I are not going to achieve a purity and a goodness of our life without changing everything. <laughs> It's not just about us changing things for ourselves, but right. it's about about reconfiguring a society. And, the, and 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 I think this is a very important part of it. Um, so I'm home about half the time, and we've been there for more than thirty years and raised our children there. And uh, I'm temperamentally very uh, different from from Betsy, and that uh, I really am happy to be back in New York. And I heard from Betsy the other day at an email. She said, I'm glad that you're there and doing well, but I'm glad that I'm not there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, but, but, you two travel a lot. I mean, reading your newsletter, The Sower, uh, which, which if, if you ever, uh, if you want to get a copy of The Sower, can we, like, get it out to people? Uh, yeah, and it's, it's, it's posted. I'll give you the... Yeah, well, if anyone wants to know, just uh, email barkrollradio yeah. at gmail.com, and we'll... Uh, We'll get you in contact with Brian. Well, you can, can just put that up on our website with, about, a, with a link. About his Iowa farm and uh, what's going on there, the things you're growing and mm-hmm. and uh, how you seem to be self-sufficient, but also how the environment is affecting your uh, crop growth. And, and the fact that your big tree up front was cut down, that there was a heartbreak for me to, <laughs> to, to, to read that. But the stump is still there. Yeah. Why? Because the insects have a place to kind of uh, uh, to breed and grow yeah. and... So you're, you're thinking of everybody. And <laughs> Brian, you told us that you traveled to Kabul a lot, um, many times. How did that start? What was the uh, impetus? Well, the first time was in 2010, and I was actually on the second delegation. Kathy and a few other people had been there one time before. That was a great experience, and I met um, some young people who are were just children then who are now young adults who are still good friends. What was the statement? Why did you go? Well, we went to see what's going on and to, and to meet people and to, and, to, and to make relationships. Yeah, but um, the, the press is telling us what's going on. No. You, you have, you, you have <laughs> no. to go and see for yourself? Yeah, it's... Um, no, I, I, I think there's something very essential about these, these personal relationships. So it's that, about making connections. Yeah, and um, one thing I've seen, I've, I've been there every year or so at least since then, and an impossible, a very, very difficult situation that, that we saw in 2010 has gotten, with every visit, exponentially worse. Um, it's much less safe. You know, we first went there, we could bring 12 people, we could bring a 30 people, we could rent some space and guest rooms and get vans and say we're, we're Americans visiting, <coughs> right. visiting Kabul. But today we have to go 
as Kathy said, we go one at a time and keep a very, very low profile and try not to be noticed. And, that, and that's for your safety or for the people that you're visiting for their safety? More for their safety. You know, for ourselves, I don't want to say that it's not scary. Uh, but, but even what happens to us is, is small compared to what would happen to these young uh, teenagers and street kids who go to the school that, that, our, that our young friends run, a, street, a school for street kids. Um, if they get associated with um, in any kind of way with foreign, this is a part of foreign influence right. in the country, they'd all be in danger. One thing that really has changed, too, is that well, some years ago, the uh, U.S. Embassy uh, employees, we have one of the largest embassies in the world in Kabul, but their employees now can only travel by helicopter from place to place. They d are not allowed on the street. Wow. And now, the last year or so, not even the military, the, the, the convoys that we used to see of American soldiers with armored cars, and always it was somebody with a machine gun on the very top, looking, right. you know, uh, ready for trouble any minute. Those are, those are gone because it's not even safe for them. Um, they only go by helicopter. And maybe if I could add, the U.S. Census report just put out a listing of the amounts of bullets that the United States exported from uh, January of 2018 through to November of 2018. And, I didn't um, know they reported on that. Well, they do. $123 million worth of bullets were sold to Afghanistan. This is eight times more than the amount in 2017. So what do you think that means? I mean, I think it's so cynical and horrible. Some people that want to sell bullets figured out that in all the places in the world, the place where you can have the best chance to sell bullets right now is in Afghanistan because there's maybe a chance of civil war. Well, that's the last place in the world that anybody should ever sell a bullet. Unless it's you want to make a profit. Exactly. So wow. my, pe my friends in Chicago that live in impoverished neighborhoods where there's terrible gun violence are always wondering, why don't they shut down the gun stores? And it's really about the same. Yeah. Why do we allow people to continue to sell $123 million worth of bullets? And if you look down the list of the U.S. Census report on how many bullets we sell, every country after Afghanistan has maybe twelve dollars to $15,000 million worth of bullets. This is Bar Crawl Radio. Uh, we're talking with Kathy Kelly and Brian Terrell who are members of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. We're at Gabriella's, as I said, and we're having a fascinating conversation. And I don't know, should I get depressed or should I get joyous? It's well, I wanted to say, Kathy, your activism, is your, your list is too long to, to go into everything. But you were in Iraq in, what was it, 2003, when the, the bombing started. Why were you there? Well, we had violated the United States economic sanctions as often as we could. I was in Iraq in the 1991 war as well, and I saw firsthand how you wipe out the electrical facilities across the country, and it's going to start having a terrible adverse impact on children. But then you add in continuance of the economic sanctions, and the UN was telling us children were dying first in the hundreds, then in the thousands. And we thought, well, we can't just sit back and watch like we don't know what's going on. We've learned too much. So 
uh, after 27 trips to Iraq, I, I just couldn't say to people, well, I've got a blue passport, I'm out of here, when we knew perfectly well that the United States was building up for a huge, huge bombing and invasion, so we stayed. And um, it, it certainly was shocking and it was awful, as was every week of the ensuing occupation. You were in Baghdad as when the bombing started. I mean, right. we've all seen it on television. And I mean, I, I remember it, those nighttime bombing uh, raids. Yeah. You were there when it happened. Yeah, in fact, uh, the, the kind of iconic photo for CNN was of our hotel. And you could see the flames in the background and the smoke swirling around. And it was... Uh, you must have been enormously scared. I mean, how would you describe the feelings that you had? Well, you feel utter dismay. And yet, when you're surrounded by children and teenagers, and they look to the adults first, they really look to see... What are the adults expressing? So I, I think, I don't know how to play poker, but I bet I have a good poker face. You just take the emotion off so as not to scare the children and think of ways to distract them. Here, let's do shadow shows with these flashlights. But of course, the children, they have their ways of coping. And I remember a little Milada would take the flashlight and pretend it was a gun and aim it at her mother and then at me, because that's how she could turn it into a game. And it wouldn't be the end of her world. Mm. Or, these yeah. these know, bombs that were falling were American bombs. Oh, always, on, yes. on you, and you're an American. You're a United Statesian. Yeah. Um, I mean, was any was any fingers pointed at you, and why, why are your people doing this? Well, that's so interesting. You know, at, at no point did anyone we know accuse or um, express toward us hatred or a desire for revenge. I mean, I... After Saddam's government was gone, there isn't anybody that could have persecuted them for having done so. And yet, um, the, the message was always, welcome, come in, sit down, hold our children, sleep on our rooftop, come back again when you have more time. The most incredible levels of hospitality. Maybe that's because of who you are and the group that Ooh, you're with. No, no, no. I think it's a culture, a code of hospitality. And... Um, I've se we've seen it again in Afghanistan. And, and the, the sad thing is, you know, Brian had talked about drones. Well, these drones follow their high-value target. And, you know, if there's a knock on the door, an Afghan family has that same code of hospitality. They're not going to turn someone away very readily. And then they become the next attack target. Brian and Kathy, we have so much that we want to ask you, and, and we're kind of running out of time. We only have this corner of the bar for... For, for a few more minutes, and we wanted to talk to you about uh, your experiences of being in prison. Um, this is a topic that is fascinating to many of us because we are in terror of the possibility of being in prison. Uh, you've both been in city jail, state, federal prison. Is there any way of ex describing that experience? You've been there so many times, maybe it's ordinary? I mean. What is it like? Well, I've been in federal prison four times, and I can tell you, I don't know where they keep the bad sisters. I haven't met them. I've met women who could have been my coworkers, my next-door neighbors, my mm. uh, in-laws, and Who everybody. are these people that, that are your sisters? They're people, generally, whose lives turn toward economic chaos. And the main income-earning industry, if you will, in their neighborhood tended to regard, be in regard to drugs. Right. Uh, but, you know, I, I sense that in the county jails, 
uh, it's a different story because there's very little supervision or oversight and any time I've been in a county jail the longest is maybe two months um, that's a that's a much rougher situation that's why we're thinking so much about our friends with the Kings Bay plowshares but I mean I don't mean to be flippant because the the just, just to put in context, the Kings Bay Plowshare are the ones who went into the nuclear weapon facility. They go into, into, yeah. and they, they protest the Trident yeah. missiles, yeah. and they're facing they're facing federal trial. prison. Yeah. yeah. But uh, the three of them have been in a county jail in the South for almost a year now. And that's worse. Yeah. But I do want to say that once you're in the federal prison system, just to address that sense of fear, I I knew graduate students. Um, I was studying down in Hyde Park in Chicago, who suffered a lot more. Uh, in terms of everyday misery than those of us who were in the prison. But with that said, separate yourself from your children so long that right. you're afraid the children won't remember what you look like. Separate yourself from community, from any kind of choice-making over your everyday habits. The prison is a wicked system, and I think it should also, like the U.S. military, be dismantled. And, and you were in prison for the longest time? What was the longest period? I did one year for planting corn on top of nuclear missile silo sites, and then uh, subsequent imprisonments were for uh, three months, respectively. And Brian, you, you've been in prison. I wanted to ask you, do you remember the first time you went to jail? Oh, well, the, the first time for me was uh, was actually very, very blessed. It was in Colorado, uh, Rocky Flats Nuclear Weapons Factory, and there were some 14 of us. Uh, uh, Daniel Ellsberg was one of the uh, one of my co-defendants, and I shared a cell block with him. Uh, and uh, there were only two other prisoners in the whole jail, the rural jail in, in Colorado. Very educational, very... Uh, uh, my first experience held no fear and no discomfort. But I think today what's happening with mass incarceration is the United States has more people in prison than any country in the world, more than China, right. more than Cuba. And I think one thing that we need to be very clear about and what frustrates me, even when good people are talking about prison reform and talking about uh, community-based uh, restoration, restorative justice, is that fewer than 5% of people in federal prison have ever been convicted of a crime that they had had a trial for their crime. That almost all these cases are are solved be, with, with with are resolved with the plea deal. Plea deals, and if you don't have a lawyer, and you're going to be in jail until your case is is set, and you have the the federal government is telling you, you plead guilty to this cr crime and you agree to testify against other people, which doesn't mean telling the truth. It means you cooperate with it, with, you know, you, you right. say if they tell you to point the finger at somebody, you do. If you do that, you'll get out in five years. And if you don't, we'll take you to trial, and you don't have a lawyer, <laughs> and we will win, and you will go to prison for 30 and 40 years. And it's a, um, people, people flee out and then yeah. this is the vast majority so really um, as I told uh, after I finished my, my last time in actual federal prison I did six months in Yankton South Dakota for a drone protest when I shortly after I got out I was at uh, um, Harvard Law School and I said to the kids there um, the people I left behind at the federal prison 
were no more guilty or no more innocent than you all. And they all laughed and nodded and agreed. There's no stop and frisk on Harvard Yard. And if a, if, if, if a Harvard student does get picked up by, by accident, they're going to be some, there's going to be some kind of diversion program or something, some very liberal kind of thing. They're not going to end up in jail. Well, that's what we're seeing with the opioid crisis too. Is that, that you know when it when it happens to white people, yeah, right. they get they go to um, to what do they call the, the rehab rehab? Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I, I was wondering. I mean, I spent that time with you that week in Washington D.C. when you were protesting the Guantanamo prison in Cuba, and it occurred to me that I mean, I I felt. Deep, I felt that you all had deep connection with those prisoners. Mm -hmm. Is it that experience of you being a prisoner that has kind of like given you insights into that life and a feeling for them? Um, the Muslims that in Guantanamo. Very much so. I, I, I feel like when I, when I go to the Witness Against Torture, and several times, like three times I've done it, I'm done at least overnight in jail, uh, once for 10 days. Um, I feel very much just as we fast while, while we're there in solidarity with those people on hunger strike. And when we fasted in New York, it was in solidarity with the people of Yemen who are missing meals. It's a small thing, but it puts you in touch. So being held in lockup overnight or for 10 days is a very, um, is another way of being in solidarity with, with those prisoners. And also, my experience in D.C., I've been in the D.C. city jail system um, more times than I can remember. Every time they see me, the prisoners and the guards both, they all ask me, what were you protesting? They don't ask me if I'm a protester, mm -hmm. because they know that the only way, no matter how many, everybody knows D.C. is a city full of criminals who are throwing people's lives away. Every day, the only way. I'm talking about the politicians. Yes. Yeah. And then, and, but but the only way, the only reason they see a white man in central cell block, well, you have to be a protester. Right. The only way you can end up here, is by confronting the system directly, right. and resisting that system. Face off. You were you had to have been arrested at the White House or the Pentagon or right. <laughs> in Congress or someplace because you wouldn't be here. Uh, it's, this is the, the, the central cell block is a place where they just pick up poor people of color, and that's why they're there. There's well, no, nobody there who, no matter how heinous a crime they've been committed, it, 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 just, it just doesn't happen that white folks end up in that in that situation. Right. And that's, to, you know, to me that's um, and for uh, generations of resistors in the United States, this is uh, back from Eugene Debs, who was in. Uh, uh, ran for president in what 2016 from prison. Okay. 2016? <laughs> no, no, 1916. I'm sorry, my uh, during World War One. Uh, yeah, this this is just a very important part of our education and right. formation is 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 to have these experiences. So, Brian, Kathy, you're here in New York. Tell me, Kathy, what are you? Why are you here? And what do you hope to accomplish? Well, specifically tomorrow, I'll appear at, uh, at an arraignment in the New York court for having stood in front of the U.S. mission to the United Nations. But um, mostly, I hope to be part of a growing community that says that we can't be mesmerized by what's happening 
in Yemen and pretend that we don't have a responsibility to try and take some kind of action. And I am so grateful to the New Yorkers who, uh, since 2017, uh, now as we move toward the fifth year of war against Yemen, they have been out in Union Square Park every Saturday morning vigiling. And so if we can bring a little energy into that scene by coming in from out of town and helping to uh, organize events, I think that's a very good thing. We'll um, have our court date tomorrow and then we'll go to a cafe on C Street um, and have a sort of a fundraiser. I don't know how much funding we'll um, provide, but it will be a chance for people to get together. And then on Tuesday, we will go to both the U.S. mission to the United Nations and the Saudi consulate meeting together at 11 a.m. at the Isaiah Wall and we'll process carrying children's book bags reminiscent of the children killed in Yemen on, on August 9th by a Lockheed Martin missile. And then um, that evening we'll be at the People's Forum for an event with the Rise and Resist group. So um, then I head off to Albany and Brian will be going back into the Midwest and there are many other opportunities to learn from others and to speak and to try to sound the alarm. You know, we're in a terrible, terrible situation of uh, recklessness, war-making, and, and bloodshed in a permanent warfare state. Brian, any, any last statements about this? What, what, what do you feel you're accomplishing through these, this life's work that you have, that you've dedicated your life to, go to prison for? Well, I think we're, the world's in a, in such a, um, we are in such danger, and the precarity of the situation is something that I don't think even those of us who are as active are uh, able to comprehend what, <laughs> how bad things really are. I, is we are so close to the destruction of our species. Many scientists are saying that it's, it's mathematical near certainty. And yeah, we worry, nothing we, else we to do. We worry about our grandchild. You know, who's inheriting this world. Well, we are out of time, Ellen. Yeah. And I just want to say thank you so much, Brian and Kathy, for coming and talking to us. And we will share this with our listeners. And good luck on your work. Um, and, and, and there's so much more to, to talk about. Um, and, and we should continue this conversation, if not with you, with others of your ilk <laughs> who are doing this this wonderful work of yours to change our imagination, I guess, to kind of wake us up to who we really are and who we should be. Well, one of our young Afghan friends will be here in New York. I don't know if we can get him into the pub crawl, but we can try. <laughs> well, you know, bar, bar, bars, are, bars are neat places. Well, he doesn't have to drink if he doesn't. That's you true. Know. I'm not yeah. drinking. So this is Bar Crawl Radio, and we are recording at Gabriella's Tequila Bar on West 94th Street and Columbus Avenue. We want to thank Nat and Liz for giving us space at the bar on a busy Sunday afternoon. Next on Bar Crawl Radio, we will be talking with three poets who are part of the world poetry movement, using poetry to argue for a world without walls. Here we go. And uh, I think that's a wrap, sweetie, and i got to let everybody know that you've done this episode with a painful earache and I, I thank you for persevering through this. Thank you. Our Girl Radio. Okay. And we're out. Thank you.
Brian Terrell outside 5C on Avenue C. And I just want to get a report on how the hearing went today. Well, we were in the New York City criminal court for more than two hours. And seeing the people who came before us, uh, which much more interesting than our own, our own uh, small case, yeah, this is a place that the, the, the wheels of justice grind slow and fine, and they're grinding up people's lives. People who are picked up uh, for, you know, they're uh, just the, 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 the poor of the city who are uh, uh, picked up for prostitution and all kinds of small, small things that are really, uh, uh, the people we saw there are more the victims of crimes than the perpetrators of them. We are accused of, of uh, violating the public order <laughs> uh, but orderly conduct today disorderly conduct uh, orderly conduct is allowing genocide to go on and they don't want to hear any of this so what they did is is uh, the, the strategy that they've done in the New York courts uh, pretty much has been just to uh, um, the words they use the words of it is a uh, adjournment for contemplation for dismissal which means if we uh, they have six months in which, if we piss them off, they can reopen the case. And after six months, it just goes away. So you're going to be a good boy for six months? No. <laughs> the, 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 the judge said to us, uh, each um, stay out of trouble and then uh, good luck. And I thought, that's kind of contradictory there, isn't it? Yeah. We can't stay out of trouble because it's a, it, 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 it's a trouble to be a human being today. Nobody gets in the way and nobody disrupts things is... Uh, is is really kind of suicidal at this point, and so uh, no, we'll continue to uh, behave. Uh, uh, disorderly conduct will be our code of conduct. There we go. Thank you, Brian Terrell. Um, Thank you, Alan. On a windy Avenue C in front of Five C, where you're having uh, a gathering of many uh, civil disobedience uh, protesters for the fierce urgency of now mm -hmm. protesting Yemen, but other things. So again, thank you again for being on Barco Radio. Okay, <laughs> thank you, Alan.